This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Warren Buffett is worth nearly $50 billion, yet Buffett himself will tell you that society is responsible for a very significant percentage of what he's earned. In his new book, Unjust Desserts, How the Rich Are Taking Our Common Inheritance and Why We Should Take It Back, our guest today, Lou Daly, demonstrates that up to 90% of current economic output derives not from individual ingenuity, effort, or investment, but from our collective inheritance of scientific and technological knowledge. Daly is a senior fellow at Demos and the author of God and the Welfare State. Lou Daly, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. Now, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing very well. It's nice to have you here. And I want to know when I can get my share of uh, Warren Buffett's wealth. <laughs> 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 What's that going to happen? Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens over the next uh, four to eight years about that. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about this, because uh, see, why, why is it that there is, there's so much going to the rich? What's the disparity right now between the rich and the poor in the U.S.? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that question, because our, our book really is, is an attempt to weigh in, uh, in on the larger debate about inequality. Um, well, inequality today is is essentially at levels we haven't seen since the since the Great Depression. Uh, a very small percentage of our population, five percent, even one percent, has essentially captured all of the wealth or most of the wealth that we've created over the last twenty years. While the majority of people are either struggling to stay afloat in the middle class or sinking down sinking down into a situation of of working poverty yeah. yes. well there there's a uh, i want to cuz I, I hear these these numbers get uh thrown around a lot and i just want a, a little bit of clarification uh what percentage are we saying the 1% control and i've heard upwards of 70 80% of the wealth in this country is that am i in the ballpark here to see um no i would say uh, i'd say the best Figure is close to fifty percent okay. of of sort of the capital wealth of our country is con- controlled by the top one percent. That's an amazing figure. Uh, and okay, so and then as we as we sort of move down the uh, the economic food chain, five percent control a tremendous. Obviously, it goes it goes up quite a bit from from one percent to five percent in terms of the control of of capital in the country. Yeah, but but the the greatest concentrations are. You know, there's a huge, even a huge gap between the top one percent and, say, the ninety-fifth percentile. Okay. So it's a, it's a extremely it's a situation of extremely concentrated wealth. And, and I've heard that the disparity in the United States is is among, if not the greatest, but among the greatest disparity in in what we call the industrial world. Yeah, it's it's it is number one by by a wide margin. By a wide margin. And it's funny, we think of these countries like uh, maybe a South American country, uh, you know, a Mexico or, or Bolivia or something like that is the place where you'd see this wide disparity. But in fact, we have, uh, to our shame, we've taken that, that mantle, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, we're closer, we're, we're closer to, I guess, what you described. You mentioned those Latin American countries. We're closer, in terms of our inequalities, we're closer to 
uh, a sort of a Latin American standard than uh, a European standard, which is while at the same time being wealthier than any of the European countries. Was there, was there ever a time in the United States history where that disparity con- constricted? Uh, was there ever a time when the distribution of wealth was greater or more more equitable? Yeah, I mean, after World War II, uh, economists call it the period of the Great Compression, sort of ju- juxtaposed with the Great Great Depression, where inequalities narrowed, and most of the gains of our economic growth coming, you know, as we took our advanced position in the global economy after World War II, went to the middle class. And that was, you know, that was largely a function of a certain kind of policy structure um, exemplified by the GI Bill, a much much more progressive system of taxation, um, uh, 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 much higher percentage of of workers having bargaining power through through union membership and so on and so forth. These exerted a kind of pressure on on our economy that that um, lowered inequalities and you know and channeled most of the gains of the economy into the middle class and, in fact, created our middle class. It was only in the late 1970s and, and beginning quite uh, radically in the, in the 1980s that we, we, we began to see the kind of reversal that is, you know, in evidence all around us today. And so now we've returned back essentially to, to the, level, you know, the, the, the standards of the 1920s. You can go ahead and say it. It was the Reagan administration. Let's just say it right out loud. Uh, we we we've talked about extensively on Weekly Signals about the uh, this kind of uh, the canonization, the canonization of, of Reagan, yeah, Reagan. And, and believe me, nothing can unjust. be further from the truth as far as we're concerned. So <laughs> so uh, so yeah. really, the Reagan administration gave it its sort of uh, governmental imperature, didn't it? This sort of uh, redistribution of wealth upward. Sure, uh, yeah. policies. Uh, coming out of that period that direct, you know, that have directly, um, you know, helped help to cause the kinds of inequalities today include, you know, workers have much lower bargaining power today. Mm-hmm. Fewer and fewer are organized in unions, and as a direct result, they have less bargaining power to, to push for higher wages. Uh, we have a much less progressive tax system in terms of sort of the rate structure um, of, who, you know, who's paying what share of their income. We have a minimum wage that has depreciated in value, hasn't kept up with inflation at all, and so, you know, has lost about 45% of its value since the late 1960s. And the minimum wage sort of sets the floor for the whole wage structure. So as that, um, you know, as that sort of cornerstone of the wage structure has eroded, uh, you know, middle-class wages have, have fallen as well. And all of this, of course, is... is all of this, um, all of these policy matters are, are, you know, greatly exacerbated by global competition. Of course, you don't want to discount the pressures that are being placed on our economy by globalization. But to 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 attribute all of our problems to global competition and and ignore, you know, the the, the policy choices that have exacerbated those pressures. Um, just just doesn't square with the truth of what's happened. We're speaking with Lou Daly. The book is Unjust Desserts. And let's go back to Warren Buffett now. Uh, mm-hmm. When he says that society is responsible for a very significant percentage of what he's earned, um, 
Talk a little bit about that. Tell us what he means by society, and and uh, does that go back in time? Are, are we talking about a, a, a inheritance of wealth that we're uh, we're entitled to? Yeah, I mean, I think I think well, when when Warren Buffett and and he he's made similar comments um, in different in with with you know in different contexts, but the basic point is is you know by by society, Warren Buffett means essentially everything that individuals depend on and and benefit from which they themselves we ourselves as individuals did not create and and don't maintain so there are many many institutions and systems that all or most of us sort of commonly use in our daily lives these are often funded by taxes of course but basically for sort of for pennies on the dollar compared to the value that they add to our lives. So from good roads to public schooling to national defense to food and drug regulation, which give, give, give us confidence in our consumer markets, you know, to, to, of course, the great social insurance programs like Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. Now, Buffett may, makes... In, in a, makes the point more more incisively in another often quoted line where he says, "How much money would?" I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically asks, "How much money would I have if I were born in Bangladesh, yeah. or born here in the United States in 1700?" His point is really that his wealth is not strictly a product of his unique talents, or, you know, or his or his unique effort, but is largely an accident of when and where he was, he was born. If he were the same person he is today, with the same amount of effort and the same intelligence, but he was born in a poor country or transported back to early America, he would not have the wealth that he has today or even, even a tiny fraction of it because the capacity of the society just wouldn't enable that. Well, also, too, I, I get the feeling we're standing on the shoulders of the innovators that came before us. Yes. And, and that uh, there's something in the, your book, too, about the historic view of technology. Could you talk a little bit about sure. the heroic, I mean, view of technology? Yeah, well, that, that you raised the question. So we, we sort of take off from Buffett and say, yes, society plays a big role. But as some someone once asked us when we were talking about the book, okay, so... You, you know, your argument goes further. We don't. We we not only owe a lot of our wealth to society, but we owe a lot of our wealth to dead people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, the question we do try to get at in the book is, what do the wealthy owe to dead people? Um, you know, it, it takes Buffett's point to a deeper level. So, so we're not just looking at society as the sort of combined systems that we currently currently rely on, but we we look at how society has preserved the advances created by previous generations yeah. and and what this cumulative inheritance of human learning if you will uh, c- contributes to our current economic activities and and and, and well-being yes. so you you raise the question of of the 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 heroic theory of invention um, now that that you know that that that's a, a, a sort of the common way we think about technology um, that that 
um, invention and technological progress is is you know sort of a is sort of a timeline. There's just a sequence of great eureka moments um, developed by great individualistic thinker you know individual thinkers and that's all we you know that's all we really need to know to understand technological progress but you know in fact if 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 you look at the history of technology it's really that isn't really how things happen what normally happens is that the prevailing knowledge reaches a certain point where you're, you're, you, it's narrowed down to a certain range of possibilities of you know what the next step will be to to advance the technology to meet a new need, and and this is exemplified in the in the phenomenon of simultaneous invention, where you have one or more, often many many people who are reaching for the same next step at the same point in time, independently of one another. Mm-hmm. So Alexander Graham Bell, for example, the day he filed his patent on the telephone in 18 uh, for the telephone in 1876, uh, another inventor, Elisha Gray, also filed a patent for the telephone. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, and, and uh, prior to those two, even another inventor named Antonio Meucci had very similar ideas, but just simply didn't have the money to file for the patent. Yeah. So. Alexander Graham Bell happened to win the patent race for the telephone, but to to then characterize him as the inventor of the telephone, when in fact the real inventor of the telephone was the knowledge that all of these inventors had at their disposal. Yeah, it seems to me too that uh, yeah, technological progress is is financed primarily by taxpayers. That that we're you know developing an internet. Before, and yeah. then, and then the big yeah. business comes in, takes it over, gets all the profits, and then starts charging the very people who made it possible. Yes, that's true. I mean, this is this is a really another key body of evidence that we draw on in the book that points to our underlying argument about society's role in generating our wealth. And I, I I would estimate, and there are studies that show that probably eighteen of the twenty-five most significant advances in computer technology were financed by the government. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, um, uh, obviously, the development of the Internet, which began its life as a a defense department project um, and then evolved into, many of us will will remember, the university-based computer networks of the 1980s um, before finally, 30 years later, it was had reached a point of development where the private sector got interested in it, and it was privatized in the early 1990s and took off from there. So, but, so, but the government bore all of the risk leading to the point where it became a marketable right. technology. Well, the, the catchphrase in this has become um, the uh, privatizing, I mean, socializing costs and privatizing the profit. And that, right. And that's what's been going on. And this is what, you, as you were describing earlier, this is where, going back to the time of the end of World War II and the GI Bill and all of the the way that the government was fashioning policy was in a way to help build a middle class. Now it seems that government policy is designed to help uh, a corporate uh, state uh, in, in increasingly um, – I'm taking the risk out of what they're doing and, and maximizing their profit in the, in the process, and not al- and really, uh, it's not allowing the, that that money to, to seep down into into the middle class. 
I think that's true. And yeah. I think, I, I mean, I think that the, one of the most interesting thing that's, I think you, you rightly, you rightly draw, you know, draw the contradiction between, uh, privatizing the gains and socializing the costs. And this is particularly acute now in terms of the, the financial collapse. But you notice that, that, you know, politically, um, as, as this bailout has gone forward from the early very skeletal sort of give the banks what they need point of view of, of Secretary Paulson. The three-page. Yeah, three the three-page law, $700 billion <laughs> giveaway. Then it went into Congress, and then people actually, people act, then, then, the, then the, the debate kind of shifted into, into more of a, and in, in, in a way, a, a surprisingly sharp moral discussion in terms of, well, if we're going to, you know, um, privatize these these losses. If we're if we're going to socialize these losses, while uh, you know while all along um, privatizing the gains, then society deserves to have a stake in the future of these assets. Yeah. Um, so that, in a way, in a very interesting way, ties into the argument that we're we're making in the book, and so society's new stake that we'll have in these financial. Financial assets is sort of one level of of the way in which we we argue that society has a claim on on the wealth that we generate in our economy. Um, but our our book, you know, show, shows that in fact this this sort of moral instinct of of giving society its due, if you will, mm-hmm. actually in terms of sort of the economic evidence penetrates much much more deeply into the into the heart of you know. Our economy and how and how we've generated the kinds of um, the kinds of living standards that you know that we saw emerge in the 20th century. Well, isn't isn't this this? And I I understand that the the congressmen who were taking calls on this bailout bill, it was running 90 95 percent against this giveaway to the these uh, uh, financial institutions. Isn't this really embedded in the DNA of America? It is in a preamble to uh, our Constitution to provide for the common wealth, right? Isn't that? I be- I, I uh, yes it, I. We- I- and that's what this is about. We're, that we, really, the, the Founding Fathers understood that for this to be a functioning, um, vibrant society, that the government had to be there in order to provide for, they say commonwealth, but just break that word up, the commonwealth is what we're talking about here. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I, you know, I hope that, that you know, our, our, our book... Um, which looks at the you know the 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 role of our our of our expanding knowledge and the social institutions that have created our knowledge economy, you know sort of gets gets its day in the sun as 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 a kind of uh, a, a kind of uh, social achievement that you know the 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 inequalities we have today just doesn't it, it isn't it isn't taken. The, it isn't taken account of yeah. yes. uh, in 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 terms of how you know how we've let uh, the, the disparities in wealth and income get out of control, as if society didn't have any kind of claim to you know use a share of that wealth for 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 social needs. Yes, oh, we've been speaking with Lou Daly. Uh, he's the co-author of the book with uh, Gar Alperovitz of Unjust Desserts. How the rich are taking our common inheritance and why we should take it back. Uh, 
Lou Daly, thanks so much for a great book, and uh, good luck in everything in the future. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.